Welcome to another episode of Ask a Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli speaks to her religious, holy friend. I'm Yael, here with Chaylea, uh, Lizzo's Jewish backup dancers, <laughs> oh some might God. call us. Um, were th- I forget, were they fat or not fat? I, I don't know, but I think she was fat shaming them. Isn't that what oh, she's getting in trouble for? I, I thought when I first heard the story that she was because it was like Lizzo like does you know like criticizes them for their weight and I was like oh they must have been skinny then she must have like made fun of them for being too skinny <laughs> like us I mean, oh my god the whole story is so cringe I can't handle like the whole story and it's just like this is the culture we live in that you just as soon as you're on top someone's gonna pull you down so like just stay stay in the middle of the pack don't try yeah. to be do anything yeah just like us we don't aspire <laughs> like to be us. the top want to be Jewish the, podcast. No, absolutely. I don't want to be on any top 10 list. I want to just be, you know, <laughs> somewhere in the middle. Of the, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. We're, we're not, we're not a threat to anyone. I mean, but also this, my parents are going to cringe so hard when they hear this. Cause I feel like this was me my whole life. Like why try when you could just get a B plus, like that's exactly. fine, you know? And then when I became a parent, I'm like, what the hell? Like, no, <laughs> try. And you could get an A, but I was that's always what, the kid uh, who didn't try. That's what they say at Harvard. Bees get degrees. <laughs> it's true. It's true, right? I mean, but also we would never treat our backup dancers like that. We would be like, so nice to them. I know. We would be like, oh my God, you guys are dancers. That's so cool. I know. It, I would it's, be, it's, yeah, I mean, if we had time, anything, it would be amazing. Come on. The one time where I went, like I had like a strip club, not a club, but for a bachelorette party where... <laughs> We got a stripper, but we got a female stripper and we what? just ended up like sitting on the hotel suite floor with her and like talking about her life. <laughs> oh my God. That should be a movie. That would be hilarious. You yeah, did that she, once? She was very nice. Yeah. That is so funny. <laughs> did she have an interesting story? Yeah. You know, we're just like, tell us about your life, how you got here and you know what you do. And then you paid her? Yeah. Well, she danced I, too. What? Yeah, before At that. Bachelorette party? Yeah. Because we I thought it would be gross to get a male stripper. And we're like, a female stripper is totally not gross. <laughs> oh my God. But we're this two and a half minutes into this and we've already lost all of our Orthodox <laughs> listeners. By the way, but you, you should s- stick around because we do have we do have a guest today. <laughs> Wait, did you see? I think I sent you the reel of the woman coming out of her hotel room to get her DoorDash delivery. Uh-huh. And she has on like a shower cap and her like mud mask. And she just looks and she's in her pajamas. And like all the guys from Magic Mike start walking out of the elevator. <laughs> and it's just like exactly what all of us experience some point in our life when you see someone who, you know, you, yeah. you hope you look attractive to, but you end up like being in your worst you know, worst case scenario outfit. It's just such well, a funny. There's reel. always the stories about people who go out like naked or in a towel <laughs> out of their out of their hotel room door, and then a <laughs> hotel room, and then the door locks behind them. Oh my! God. Which sounds to me simultaneously both like something that how could somebody be that stupid, and yeah. also something that could totally happen to me. Yeah, I mean, no way, like never, <laughs> like, never, no. Both how, those how things can happen. Well, no. not to a not to a modest woman like you. No, absolutely not. Never. But to somebody like me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, happen. I still get dressed in the dark. I mean, that, that just would not happen. Oh, you just sleep in all your clothes. <laughs> I sleep in all my clothes. You're a never nude. I'm just. Do you know a what a never modest. nude is? Did you ever watch Arrested no, what's, Development? What's a never nude? Uh, Arrested Development. They had a character there 
Tobias, who was uh, a never nude, uh, <laughs> he was never nude. So he would shower <laughs> in these like jeans cutoffs. <laughs> Oh, oh my god! god. Yeah. It's like when you're little and you shower in your bathing suit because you're yeah. like at your friend's house or whatever. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I just like, watched. Um, Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Oh, how was that? Like a, I loved it. I well, I love Judy Bloom, but there's a whole scene there about like her friend loans her a bathing suit and she's like, "Where should I change?" And her friend's like, "You should change right here." And I kind of remember those weird, awkward like. Yeah. When you start like being awkward about your body, you're like, I don't want to change here. Totally. But I don't then, know. Like six months ago, I was running around without a shirt on the beach, you know? Oh my God. Really? I mean, like, there's an, those ages like go pretty, you know, you, you, you turn pretty sharply from one I feel to the like other. I right? haven't grown out of that really. I mean, I remember like Lomans, you know, the store mm-hmm. Lomans. So yeah, they yeah, had, so they had, a, like one big changing room, like dressing room. It wasn't oh, like yeah, private. Oh, of course. I know, in like Beverly Center. Big, yeah, like I think all of the stores had that. Uh-huh. And I just was so traumatized every time I it's went there. It's a little holocaust like, you know? It's a little holocausty, And like, I just was so uncomfortable. First of all, changing myself. Like I didn't want to get undressed yeah. in front of other people, but also seeing other women just like burying themselves all yeah. over. And like, I'm still, I mean, even at 43, like at the gym, when women are just like casually walking around without clothes on, I'm like, I, I just can't, I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. so it's- awkward for me. Yeah, that Lomans thing was weird now that I think about like all these women yeah. getting together and like getting naked. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll, so we'll together. But that was lie. a good store. Oh, Lomans was a, was a really store. good store. I do miss it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, it's been here I in like Century Laundry. 21. Oh my God, Century 21. That was a Mecca for Orthodox women. Like that yeah. Century They're, 21. I, yeah. Did they open one recently again or is that? They did I dream reopened about the one in downtown Manhattan, but that one always scared me. It was always like a. Yeah. Like you no, can't, you, you need to be a very experienced shopper to go there. <laughs> but they had one on the Upper West Side that they closed. You know what they closed on the Upper West Side too? The Bed Bath and Beyond. Yeah, well, those closed everywhere. Very They're sad. They're done. I know. Very sad. But, um, wait, going back to Century Twenty One. Like when you grow up in the Orthodox world and you're like a single girl or young woman, you know, living in in New York, and you're starting to like date and you know, it's time to get married. It's like you shop a lot, right? Because you have to have the right wardrobe. You have to have mm-hmm. outfits for dating. You have to have outfits for your engagement. And it's just like a whole like, yeah, tons of weddings. I mean, I was going to weddings almost every single night when I lived Jeez. in New York as a single yeah. person. So you have to have a lot of outfits. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, we wore suits. Like when we were like going to a wedding. Do you remember like those suits that we would wear? That was like how you got I dressed up. Vision in my head of like an Orthodox woman wearing a suit. Yeah, I but mean, but like, like everyone older. wore it. No, but like everyone wore them. That's how like people dress to get dressed up. What else would you wear? I don't know. And so no. we would we would go to this like Macy's and you know on Thirty Fourth Street and just like try on a million suits and buy them. I had a light blue and a dark blue and a black. There are and a, a lot green. of Orthodox people at Macy's for sure. Yeah, totally. And at Costco. And twin sets, by the way. Do you remember twin sets? We were very no. into that. That was like a shell with like a matching sweater over it. Oh, I didn't know that's those? what they call it. Yeah, they're called twin sets. They were very in style in the early 2000s. Wow, you should open a fashion blog of like 90s Hasidic <laughs> fashion. Yeah, it was, it was really cutting edge. I bet edge. you can bring some of that back now. It was like a retro thing. I mean, it was so annoying to wear suits. I mean, I, I can't even believe that's how we dressed. I can't even now imagine I wearing Orthodox, a suit. Orthodox girls, some of them dress like, yeah, they cover up. 
But no, like some very skin, I've seen some skin tight outfits. No, they're very fashionable. Very. And by no, the way, the like, more like sexy too. Yeah. Well, that's like in certain communities, but like the more orthodox community you get, like the more Hasidic, they spend real money on their outfits or they buy like expensive fabric and they do like really nice cuts. And it's, I mean, you know, we were wearing like Tahari suits and I don't know, some of those big brands. Like that's what we were, that's what we were wearing. You know, I remember, this is a really funny story and then I'll stop talking about this, but it was like very in fashion to like make your clothes. Like there were, you know, seamstresses that you would oh go to gosh. or tailors and you would go and that's, buy that's fabric. so settle. Yeah, it was totally like that. And also like I was a hard, like I'm really short and I, it was like hard to find clothes that fit me well. So like I would go, so my grandmother and I did this whole shopping thing where we went and bought fabric and we went to the seamstress and had her make me my dream outfit. Aww. It is literally the ugliest thing you have <laughs> ever seen in your life, my sister and I, till today, laugh about it. I mean, I never wore it, not one time. And really? it probably cost me $400 to make. Is it and like it was- the, the Simpsons episode where Homer's <laughs> half-brother lets him design his dream car and it's like super <laughs> ugly? <laughs> Yes. Like I was able to design anything I wanted. I mean, I literally made a collar with like gold and black lace over it and and the sleeves matched, like the cuffs of the sleeve. Mm -hmm. And it was like a green suit and it had black and gold cuffs on the neck and arms. I mean, it was- You looked like a table setting. It was (laughs) Exactly. It was just the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Like a holo cover. It was a holo cover. That's really true. I feel like there's a reality show here of like women, (laughs) Orthodox women designing their perfect dress. You cannot imagine the tailoring that goes on in the Orthodox world. I mean, absolutely gorgeous stuff. Literally gorgeous. Not, but I'm just not good at fashion. So I shouldn't be designing anything. Thankfully you have other (laughs) Other capabilities, like technical capabilities, which is why we're here. for sure. No, I'm kidding. That's not your fault. (laughs) But we do have a guest today. The reason you hear us talking and babbling so much to fill time. Uh, is because we. Oh, I thought you wanted to talk to me and that you like my stories. You've been well, faking talked, this so, whole time. Honestly, I talked to you about the important stuff an hour <laughs> before the show. That's the really good stuff. Like you can't. There's no premium price That's that you could true. pay to get access. I mean, to I that feel content. like I feel like we can have a, a price level that people could pay to be included yeah, in those true. conversations. There's always a price. There's yeah. a price. But but you might not. You know, like don't meet your heroes. Like you might not like what you <laughs> what, what you hear. That's a good point. Like some of our fans, if yeah, they might turn on us. That's yeah, true. Yeah, but uh, but that's the good stuff. Uh, but we do have a guest, um, and we are super excited to have him on. Um, it was a really really good conversation. His name is Hen Mazig or Hen Mazig. I don't know why I said that like an American Hen. <laughs> Hen Mazig. Well, he does um, spell it like that, but we call. Well, him I have a story about that name, but in a minute, uh, I'll introduce him first. But he's an Israeli author, and he's co-founder of the Tel Aviv Institute. Um, he has a really, really interesting book called The Wrong Kind of Jew, a Mizrahi Manifesto, which a lot of our listeners have asked us about Mizrahi Jews. Um, and we go into uh, a lot of that and what it's like to be a Mizrahi Jew. He also uh, defines himself as a queer Mizrahi Israeli Jew, uh, which is a lot of identities packed yeah, into Zionist. one. Right. Zionist, of course. Um, this is a Zionist only podcast, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but he is a Zionist and he does, you might know him from his social media cause he does a lot of, um, I don't want to say, it sounds funny to say work, but he, he's on social media a lot defending Israel yeah. and putting out, you know, uh, information, um, 
really fighting against this notion that Israel is like this white colonialist, right. you know, uh, like a very conservative, very religious country because he has a different experience. Uh, so it was really fun to talk to him. And unfortunately, we lost the first couple of minutes uh, of that episode, but thankfully we kept most of it. So, but you thankfully, get to hear us babbling about Century 21. I mean, <laughs> thankfully we have people to deal with the tech because if it was up to Yael and I, we would literally have nothing. We yeah. Would be- Can we talk about how incredible our, our people are, Mickey and Gabby? <laughs> I know. Thank you, So guys. Mickey, our audio producer, these are j- just for the record, these are people who don't like, they have jobs. Like, this is right. not what they do. Right. Um, they're just our friends and they like us. Um, and we buy them dinner when we see them. But um, <laughs> Mickey, who made, created magic with the audio and salvaged what he could salvage. And then Gabby, who, like, if Gabby wasn't texting us all the time and being like, hey, what about this episode? Like, there would be no podcast. Right? <laughs> Because we're losers. Oh, no, I would be like, bad. I really want to record this episode, but I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm, I just started watching this Netflix show about like <laughs> cult leaders and I can't exactly. stop right now. Exactly. Yeah. And you'd be no, like, thankfully. it's a Jewish holiday and nobody would like, you know, be able to, but she would be able to laughing. say like, actually the Jewish holiday starts in three hours and you can record right now. I was laughing so hard yesterday in our group chat where someone's like, where's Hylea? And you were like, she's probably cooking for 70 people for some holiday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody asked, where's Hylea? And then we all went into our different like <laughs> things that Hylea is probably doing, which we could have done all night. I'm pretty sure you have no idea what I was actually doing. <laughs> I Well, you can tell me in the, you can tell me before we record the episode, uh, in the, oh in the before God. part. Yeah, uh, of the episode. I don't know. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about um, Jamie Foxx real quick? Oh my gosh, Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx. I don't know what to make of that story. I mean, is he, it possible that he meant Jews? I don't, I don't get think it. he did. So if you missed it, Jamie Foxx put something on his Instagram and it said like, they, they, you know, they betray Jesus and they'll betray you too. Yeah. Um, I mean, who was he talking about? I don't know. The, the Romans, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, they, um, but, but like, first of all, somebody told me, a, a black friend told me that it's, it is a very common saying in the black community. Oh, um, really? And also like, like, I don't know, this oppression Olympics has got to stop. Yeah. Can I, I mean, can it was I, in, it, I agree. And also, um, it's very hard in the Jewish community to talk about this in general, because I understand a real fear around anti-Semitism. I mean, we've talked Mm -hmm. about this a million times. We should not get into this too deeply, but I do understand it. And I'm actually in the middle of this training, this anti-Semitism training. But when a story like this happened- The training you had to be an anti-Semite? Yeah, exactly. You could could teach that class. Um, I'm doing a 16-month training with the administrators. How much is there to learn? Well, it's it's with the administrators of the university that I work at. Oh, wow. The DEI and the student- student leading team administrator. It's, it's really interesting. make them read the tablet story about DEI and anti-Semitism. I know. I know. I wonder if they're going to share that. Actually, I should ask the organizers, yeah. but, but um, it's just interesting to like experience it through the eyes of like my non-Jewish colleagues who are in the group with us. And um, the Jamie Foxx thing really throws me off because I feel like we need to calm down. Like that's not, that, that didn't, yeah. what was that? I don't think that was anything. And then even Jennifer Aniston, who like <laughs> liked it, ends Poor up having Jennifer to Aniston. like, no, she like has to apologize. And I wish, and she, would, I wish she would I'm have like, said what 
we all would have said, which is like, look, we all scroll through Instagram and hit like on shit without yeah, reading. totally. All right? So give me a break. But honestly, I, I can tell you even for myself that I used to just like everything and now I have to like think twice. I'm like, no, yeah. what if someone says this? What if, and, and I had an incident actually with, um, <laughs> I shared something on Twitter once. This is, this happened <clears throat> like last year or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I shared something from that Camille posted of all people mm-hmm. from the Camille from the fifth column. And, uh, I got a lot of backlash from some of mm. my students. Like they were really oh. upset about something I shared and I didn't even realize, I didn't do it intentionally. I didn't even realize what they were referring to. You know what I mean? Like I was just doing, I was sharing it for a different yeah, reason because yeah, it was yeah. like a bunch of different things in the tweet. But, um, you know, you have to be careful these days. You have to be careful. You have to, but you have to also like stand behind what you say and not shy away from yeah. controversy, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm whole, not, I, I'm not, I don't always practice what I, what I preach sometimes. I mean, do I you think like, Jamie, ah. I mean, no, but do you think Jamie Foxx is anti-Semitic? Honestly. You know what? I don't care. To be honest, right, I, I right. don't think so. I don't I care. Don't I so. care more about like Hasidic people. Look at me. I'm so nice to the Hasidic community. I care more about Hasidic people. Like you want to talk about black anti-Semitism, there's plenty to talk about in, in Crown Heights and, yeah. you know, and people getting like beat up. But the, the selective outrage drives me crazy. Yeah, it's like yeah. celebrities are really easy targets. And I just wish people were more, um, you know, like like put their, their anger in the right place like I'm not saying yeah. he shouldn't have been called out on that right but you can't like every inf- every Jewish influencer I know was very adamant about coming out against it and many of those are not do not come out when there's something a little more iffy like yeah. if it's about like an Israeli protester who gets beat up you know like a right. protest right, like that. right so I don't know that bothers me but then there's also can, can I talk shit a little bit about about other Jews, because this is a very, <laughs> we, you know how we fight no. anti-Semitism here? By talking shit about Jews. Oh my God. Um, but an organization, which I, I won't mention, um, I just saw their Instagram, an Instagram reel that they did about Jews in Hollywood. And it was all like, let me tell you why Hollywood is anti-Semitic. Back in 1920, this <laughs> and and basically kind of like, I don't want to say rewriting history because I don't know enough about the history, but let's say telling the whole story of Hollywood through a very, you know, critical race theory lens, right? And just completely putting the Jews and anti-Semitism in the middle of it. And I fucking hate that. It's like, I feel like the whole like social justice language has infected the Jewish community and Jews think that, this is how they can fight back by taking this um, victim status upon themselves and kind of telling a whole story about how everybody is. I mean, how, how you know, there, there's no way for us to succeed. I do actually think there's like a, a way for us to talk about this that shifts the conversation away from the victimhood and stuff. And it's really mm-hmm. about like, how is this helping our kids? Is it is it yeah, making yeah. them feel better? Are they better off? Are they happier? Are they more proud to be Jewish? Is their mental health better? Like, yeah. I really think as a community, we have to have a like almost like a collective conversation around what is this doing? And there's it ha- it hasn't come out yet. At least I haven't seen it yet in the media. Um, but I heard Breaking news. Yeah, I I don't know if I should even share it because I don't know. But anyway, I'll just say I, 
I might have said it on the last podcast, actually, but I don't remember, um, about a study that was just completed of college students, Jewish college mm-hmm. students, and 96% of them said that they were concerned about anti-Semitism. 96%. Yeah. Wait, here's the more important number. 94% of them have never experienced anti-Semitism. Oh, interesting. That is, that is a very deep story that we should really be thinking wow. about as a Jewish community. Like what- I think every community can think yeah, about that. Yeah, exactly. I, I know. Like if we did that for every community, you can see the like disparity between what yeah. people are actually and, experiencing and what we're, what we're concerned about. And a lot of that is, you know, social media and, and sort of the amplification of like the scariness and the horror, you know, the things that are And there's also a difference and, between- Sweeping things under the rug, which we don't right. want to do. We don't want to deny ignore. Yeah. that things happened. You know, we're right. not going to like rewrite history either to say like everything was always great for the Jews. Right. Right. But like, what are we focusing on? We have limited mental capacity. Right. Exactly. What, and you know, these things are going to get people angry. Right. Like, how is it helpful? Like, ask yourself, like, how, what are you, what are you producing? Like what kind of Jewish identity you're cultivating? Yeah. What are you producing aside from A, making people who aren't Jewish feel guilty right. and B, getting Jews all like, you know, like, you know, in the school, you know, in school when you're young, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but like some kids will be arguing and then other kid will be like, Oh, did you hear what he said to you? Oh my God. Are you going to let him talk to you like that? You know, I know totally. It's like it in, in Hebrew, we say like mechamim. They like warm you up. Right, you know, right, they get right. you all riled up. They get you. Yeah, exactly. Is, is this what we're going for here? Because how is that productive? Yeah. Well, thankfully, there's no more. We're, we're solving anti-Semitism, so we don't. We won't. Ever yeah. Talk well, after about it this again. episode, I think maybe yeah. not right now, but after you've done listening to totally. the episode. Totally. But um, enjoy but yeah, the conversation. I, with, I hope everyone enjoys the conversation with Chaim. Yeah. It was great talking to him. I really appreciate that he came on. Yeah, please and, look up his book. Uh, look up his yes. social media. We're going to put in the show notes. By the way, if you don't follow us on Substack, you are an anti-Semite. I mean, I don't <laughs> really see... And, you know, I don't use these accusations lightly. But also, I have to say what I have to say. So uh, follow us on Substack. If you're not anti-Semite, it's askadu.substack.com. <laughs> And uh, email us, askajewpod at gmail.com with any questions. And without further ado, rate us, rate us, rate us. Oh, rate us on on Apple. Yeah, yeah. Again, only five star. If you're not an anti Semite, if you're an anti Semite, don't rate us. But if if you're not, if you want to stand with the Jewish people, give us a five star rating on Apple Podcast, not just because we like it, but also because it really helps us grow. That's right. All right. Bye, everybody. I want to just circle to something in your book. I was reading about your gra- your grandmother's experience in Iraq. And I don't think, was it your mother or your grandmother who witnessed your grandmother? Like, I can't get over that story because it's, it, it, we don't know about that story. We don't know what happened to the Iraqi Jews in the Farhud, you know? A lot of American Jews probably wouldn't even know that, that anything there are bad, Jews. Yeah, yeah, like that anything bad happened in Iraq. And I'm just wondering if you would share just a little bit about that history and, you know, what happened to your family, how they ended up coming to Israel, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're so spot on on the part of how many uh, American Jews don't know about it. I mean, Americans in general, uh, people that speak about Israel as if yeah. they're experts and are not aware of the makeup of, of Israeli society uh, or the fact yeah. that we all 
share the same language and culture. Um, and, and, and I mean, it's even more sad when it's American Jews, because I'm thinking, you know, they're coming to Israel, they love Israel, they love, and you ask them why you love Israel so much. They say it's the food, it's the culture, it's how warm the people are, how direct they are, um, <laughs> how the, uh, we love the music. Uh, and I'm saying, okay, so you love all these things, but you don't know anything about Mizrahi. Uh, that's very, it's, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, but I feel it's very Israeli, like, sorry to, to interrupt, just, you know, when, when I think of myself, uh, and I've said this to Chayla a lot, you know, like, an, an, I'm Ashkenazi, Polish, but I grew up in Israel, and sometimes I feel like I have more in common with somebody who grew up in the Middle East, like in Egypt, um, than like a very, you know, an average Ashkenazi Jew in America. Not always, but just like in the mannerisms, like the mannerisms of Israel, like the way we speak, the way we, you know, the way we behave, our culture is so influenced by, mm -hmm. by the Middle East. Yeah, you're so... You're, uh, and I think people don't, don't realize mm -hmm. that. It's so true. It's. I think it's. Uh, you, yeah, you touched on a, such an important issue that I think a lot of the disconnect between anti with young anti-Zionist Jews and and Israelis is because we all, even if you're Ashkenazi, like mm -hmm. I, I'm sure you've been to many Ashkenazi weddings that it was all Mizrahi music the whole time, and and they don't they don't serve like oh, yeah. they don't serve gefilte fish. Um, like the, the culture is very much Middle Eastern <laughs> in in Israel, even if you're even if you're Ashkenazi, right? Yeah, my niece and my dad sent us a video yesterday of them. Two like very Ashkenazi people sent us a video of them in the car blasting like Mizrahi music, and you know that's their their fun. It's not, um, you know, it's not uh, yo I'm going. No, with no no offense. You know, no, exactly. It's really even influenced the Haredi yeah. world. It's even in the we always talk about this that even the way we. I know this is a simple thing, but the food we eat on Shabbat is totally changed since we've, you mm. know, lived together with the Mizrahi Jews. Like when my mother was growing up, it was unheard of to have anything besides gefilte fish at the Shabbos table, you know? And <laughs> you come to a regular Haredi family today, they're going to have baba ganoush and hummus and matbucha and Moroccan salmon, you know, like, and those little things, I mean, it really is a blending of cultures that... Now you're just making are, me hungry. <laughs> sorry. Okay, go back to your yeah, the Iraqi your story. Yeah, no, but just to complete my thought on the other issue that I think, you know, oh, yeah, the, the table that you that you just described and, and all of this is just so beautiful because it's about Jewish identity and it's about diversity of Jewish identity and understanding that there's so many ways to be Jewish and there are so many mm -hmm. different cultures that are Jewish and that Jewish is not just bagels and locks. And it's, it, it, while I love bagels and locks, but it's not the only way. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that anti-Zionist Jews that are um, in America are thinking that being Jewish is just Yiddish and, and bagels and locks and Barbara Streisand. And then when they come to Israel and it's Omer Adam and Matbucha and people that are being very mm -hmm. direct to them, that's not what they see as Jewish. And I think that's, it comes deep inside, it's racism and bigotry, but I think they, they, they wouldn't call it this way, but this is what it is. And that's why they're rejecting us so much because they don't want to contaminate what they think Jewish is uh, with, with people like us. But we'll talk a lot about uh, anti, anti-Zionist Jews. That's one of our favorite <laughs> yeah, topics. We'll go back to it. But so. uh, yeah, but speaking about anti-Zionist <laughs> yeah. non-Jews as well, um, my family were uh, forced out <laughs> from Iraq and Tunisia by the same type of forces. Um, they lived in those countries for ages, for generations. Um, you know, they lived, my, my family from my mother's side call themselves uh, Babylonian Jews because they live in, in, Iraq since it was Babylon. Um, and my family from my father's mm. side are wow. Amazigh Jews. Uh, Amazigh, my last name, Mazig, comes from the Amazigh, which is the, um, the 
indigenous tribes to North Africa um, that uh, they're also known as the Berbers, but they reject the term uh, of the Amazigh people because it comes from the European terms of, uh, uh, of being barbarian. That's how the mm-hmm. colonizers saw them. Um, mm-hmm. Bad, bad branding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my family's my my grandmother spoke Tamazigh, and they um, uh, and they they had actually a um, big part of the tribe was Jewish, uh, about five thousand of them. So today, everyone with last names like Mazig, wow. Amzaleg, um, uh, Amaz, uh, there's like Amazig as well, um, are all part of this tribe, the Jewish yeah. section of this yeah. tribe um, that uh, live in Israel today. Um, most of them and. That's Tunisia, that's Morocco, Tunisia? Uh, Algeria, Tun- and Libya. I think there's a few of them. It's throughout the, the Atlas Mountains in mm-hmm. in North Africa, um, and they mm-hmm. their I mean their stories wow. are amazing. And they one story that every Amazigh person will know is the story of Queen Daya, which was the uh, the queen of the Amazigh people that. Um, she was the one fighting against Islamic expansion to North Africa. And the story goes that she was actually a Jewish queen, that um, she came with, uh, or her ancestors came with uh, Queen Sheba from Judea back to uh, to North Africa. And she was Jewish and she led uh, the Amazigh people. And that's why they had such a sympathy to the Jewish community because they had a Jewish queen, which they still speak about her uh, as being Jewish. So it's, you know, the stories wow. are dating so long back. Um, and my family lived in the Middle East as every other Middle Eastern pe- person. Um, and, well, maybe that's not accurate. They lived as a minority in the Middle East, uh, being minority, a protected minority at Dimi, um, much like the Copts and the, uh, and the Yazidis and the, um, the Kurds. Uh, they lived as a minority that while had protection, the protection was limited and it changed when the governments decided to force them all out. Uh, in Tunisia, you know, the Jewish quarter was completely destroyed. Rabbinical associations were banned and that's in the early 40s. Um, and it was increasingly hard for them to live there. And then they got on a boat and left to to Israel. And at the same time, in, in 1941, we're talking about six years before Israel was even established, um, Iraqi, the Iraqi government started the, the two days of violent attacks against the Jews, um, which were called the Farhud, uh, in which hundreds of Jews were attacked. My grandmother saw her best friend, a teenage girl, being raped and killed in the streets. Um, terrible, terrible things that happened to them. And in 1951, they were just forced to leave. And force is not like being, you know, there wasn't a gun held to their heads, but they were told you can give up your citizenship. The first time ever that any minority could have right. gave up their citizenship, citizenship in Iraq was um, was a Jewish community. So they were invited to leave and they left everything behind. They had one suitcase, but my grandmother had to uh, leave the suitcase at the end because... Um, the plane was too heavy to take off. So she literally came with nothing but the clothes to her back to, to Israel, to a new country that was even, you know, even there, it wasn't that easy because they spoke Arabic and they came from Arab countries. Uh, and Israel was in fight with, with the Arab world and it was a new country and they were put in those refugee camps. So life wasn't easy for my family, but um, couldn't be more proud of all of them for making it. Wow. It's really interesting to think about the Jews... In, 19, in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, so many traumatized people. I mean, mm. really, like on both, you know, Ashkenazim and, and Mizrahi, like such trauma that everybody, I mean, I hate that word because it's so like 2023, mm. but really deep, real trauma, not like we have today. And I, there was a, there's a song by Yonatan Rozelle, and I can't think of the name of it right now. 
where he talks about in the lyrics, it's like, I, I'm, I finally understand your story. You know, like you hear, you hear the Mizrahi saying to the Holocaust survivor, like, I'm listening to your story and now I understand you. And the, the survivor saying to the Mizrahi guy, I'm listening to your story and now I understand you too. Cause like they were kind, each one was like thinking, you know, we had the worst experience and they didn't see each other, you know, and, and especially the Holocaust survivors, I think. I mean, we just met with this guy, Ruvain Abergel who's the founder of the Black, the Israeli Black Panthers. He's a Moroccan. He's like in his 80s now, but he radical, radical guy who hates Israel because when he came there, like, you know, they put them in, you know, horrible location. I mean, he's so bitter and angry about the way they were treated by the traumatized Ashkenazim who were like also trying to figure out, I'm not excusing their behavior, but, you know, it's just hard to think about like the the people, like who were building this country. It's it's Everybody astonishing. had a lot. Yeah. yeah, it's astonishing what happened in Israel. Astonishing. Absolutely. I don't know. Just I could go on about that forever. How, how old was your grandmother? Uh, she was 19. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, from my wow. mother's side. Wow. And from my father's side, I mean, my grandmother married my grandfather when she was 14. Was, she was quite young. Um, which is very acceptable back then. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, not sure about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, you know, they came to Israel. And, and as you said, they their story was not acknowledged ever. And I think that's the main thing that really Never. hurts to think about. Yeah. Um, and I think it's also part of the taboo in the Israeli society that we're not speaking about the Mizrahi, Mizrahi Jews and, and the plight of Mizrahim, not only abroad, but also when they came to Israel. Um, and, and that, you know, my grandparents mm-hmm. from my father's side in Tunisia, they had to work in forced labor camp and about 300 Jews were sent to death camps in Europe uh, from Tunisia. Um, my grandmother told mm-hmm. me that she served, you know, Nazi officers in death in in work ca- in, la- in labor camps in in Tunisia. Um, wow. So and wow. and they never felt like they could tell their stories and and that their stories would be heard. And I, you know, I wrote about it in the book in my book how as an Israeli kid I know mm-hmm. everything about the Holocaust. I know every death camp and and their names. And my Ashkenazi friends don't even know about the Farhud. And that's that's the sad part for me. Right. Uh, yeah. Have Do you, you feel read, like it's um, changing? Is it changing though? Do you think it's getting better? I mean, there there's some attempts and projects to try and make it better, but I don't feel like it's making such a an impact. Like there were there was uh, the Beton Committee that was um, committee that recommended a few years ago uh, to start including the Farhood and including the stories of Mizrahim, but it didn't penetrate the public. Like as till till this day, I don't think wow. any of the younger generations, unless they as their grandparents, like I did, um, they wouldn't know about the Farhood. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Have you read the book uh, Spies of No Country by yeah. Matti Friedman? Who yeah, he mentions it in the book. Yeah. We just had on, yeah. And that's, I mean, I learned so much from that book, yeah. you know, yeah. and and it's just like, a, you know, for people who don't know, it's about uh, the kind of precursor of the Mossad and a lot of, a uh, few stories of Mizrahi Jews who, you know, spoke Arabic and looked the part and were sent to Arab countries yeah. as spies. Uh, and it's it's pretty A few people emailed me, Elle, since we had Mati on, that they really? read the book, yeah, and they loved it. So, yeah, yeah. excellent. Yeah, well, he's he's a fantastic writer, too. I want to, uh, I want to take kind of a sharp turn because we're, we're talking about, about Mizrahi Jews. And, um, you know, when I was growing up in Israel, and, and, you know, I don't know, this could be an inflammatory statement or it could not be an inflammatory statement, but... I didn't know, we, we barely knew who was Mizrahi and who was Ashkenazi, like amongst my friends. I, it's not something we really thought of. Um, it's not, not something, you know, 
I don't know. I mean, you, you, we didn't give it a second thought. Now, and maybe it's because Israel is very polarized, it seems like the kind of racial tensions are really at the forefront. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that over the last, last few years? Do you think this kind of tension between Ashkenazi and Mizrahi is heightened? Um, yeah, I think in the recent years, it's, no, rather, I don't think that it's, um, um, I think it's more discussed and I think it's more, um, there's more open conversation about it. I don't think it's doing anything to, um, to end the divide or to, or to bridge that divide or, or to do anything to bring those people together. I think politicians are using this very painful wound in Israeli society for, um, for their benefits and using our communities as pawns. But I mean, I've, as someone that has studied it and learned about it for for so long, and and did such I did such a research for my book and had to look into numbers and and speak to scholars, and um, it's it's unfortunate that there's still a divi- still a divide and a gap between Mizrahim and Ashkenazim. Now it's not it's not like there's a law that says that Mizrahim should be moved to the periphery, but Mizrahim do live by and large in the periphery, and there's no law that says that Mizrahim should not be in the mm-hmm. You know, in academia, but there's still only seven percent of the faculty, according to the most recently available numbers, which are also, I think, 2019. Um, only seven percent of the faculty in academia in Israel are Mizrahim. You never had any head of academia, academic institution in Israel. I'm speaking about the universities um, that is uh, that is Mizrahi. Um, mm. Mizrahi Jews are still being. You know, I think the Advar report, which is talking about the social gaps in Israel, saying that there's um, a th- third, um, um, like 30% wage gap between um, second and third generation Mizrahim and Ashkenazi counterparts, um, which is very interesting because I don't think that there's anything in the society that mm. is, or sorry, there's no institutionalized racism in the sense that the institution would say, okay, or, or any governmental agency and will say that Mizrahim would, should not be accepted, but they are still not able to break the glass ceiling well enough. And, and while there is still mixed marriage, it's still talking about 11%, I think, um, of, of mixed marriage in Israel between Ashkenazim and Mizrahim. Um, so I think that the, there's still issues. And I think that since we haven't really figured it out, and perhaps it's not even about Mizrahim, just because Mizrahim are in the periphery um, of Israel, in the peripheral towns, um, they're still they're, they're not enjoying resources as the ones that are um, available in Tel Aviv. And, and if you look at the majors in, in high schools in, in the periphery mm-hmm. in Israel, the majors that are available are, are very limited compared to, I don't know, emotional tech science in, in, in Tel Aviv um, mm-hmm. or this sort of, uh, of major. So I think uh, <laughs> that there is, um, um, there's a lot of work to be done. And I don't think that the way that we're addressing it now uh, in recent years is done to solve it, but rather to increase the divide and, and use people's bonds. And that's truly heartbreaking. Does it complicate things for you that the overall Mizrahim tend to be more conservative and more right-leaning? Is that like, as a progressive, you know, tell like, I, I assume you live in Tel Aviv when you're in Israel. Is that true? I don't even know. Making yeah. assumptions, but yeah, yeah. Um, like, is that is that complicated for you? Like, because I, I, I know, like, as a Haredi person, like, I have to own the fact that my side is generally very right wing and very conservative, and it's okay. You know, my side uh, is annoying and obnoxious and yes, whiny. That's true, but I'm saying for someone like Chen who would like more progressive policies, probably in Israel, and a lot of people in you know in your community are not or don't want that. How does that? How do you navigate that? Um, it's interesting because I, I, and I'm taking notes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely, I'm definitely 
feel not comfortable, but I'm, uh, I made peace with the fact that many Mizrahim are more nationalistic, maybe. Um, they're coming from countries yeah. that are all about, um, you know, you have to protect your community uh, and you have to protect it from violence, not from um, some mm. politics or some ideas that might harm you, um, uh, harm your feelings. It's more about like real threats and trauma. Um, I mean, the this notion that, I mean, I'm seeing someone like Ben Gvir, which I cannot stand like is I think is one of the worst politicians that right. ever mm-hmm. existed in Israeli society, in Israeli Knesset but I can understand where it's coming from because mm-hmm. you know there's nothing in the Bible that says that we need to take our, take more land right there's nothing that says that we need to in fact I think even Benjamin because they were on the right on the wrong side of the Jordan River they were not at some point there was a thing I can't remember exactly but being outside of the land of Israel was not a positive thing it wasn't looked at uh, as something positive yeah. Not being no, not being like, rather yeah. another tribe. Go yes, Reuben, Manasha. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're I'm not biblical sorry. scholars here. It's fine. I'm just happy I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but but Benvir, you know, is, is an Iraqi Jew, and he brings a lot of the ideas of of yeah. from Iraq. I think of of how you need to take up take more land from other people, and that's just not something that is very Jewish or. Uh, um, or part of our identity or culture. And I think that's where it's coming from. It's coming from the Middle East. So I recognize that my community is more conservative, more right-wing and more nationalistic because of where they came from, because of their trauma. And they feel like this is the way to to protect themselves. And how can I tell my my father that is wrong and to my mom or, or to my grandparents that they don't know what they're voting for? Um, I can tell them that I, you know, that I'm an a gay person, a queer person, and I, I won't be able to get married in this country. And that's why I'm not going to have a wedding with my partner in Israel and going to do it abroad. And I can speak to them about how we're afraid mm-hmm. to move to Israel because we don't know what's going to be the legislations that those people in Knesset that are speaking very openly about how they are anti-LGBTQ and how family is just a mother and father. Um, I don't know where they're going to take the legislations next and who's going to stop them from taking that um, those steps. Um, and then I speak to them about it and, and they they realize that. But, you know, like Mizrahim are not a monolith. Some of us have different different opinions. I mean, we have different opinions from one another. And I'm hoping that a new generation would come that will be more knowledgeable and see, um, not knowledgeable, not knowledgeable is not the right term, but more, um, that will see it more, yeah, more open and, and see yeah, the situation open. clearly in the yeah. sense that the people that are being put in specifically in Likud are being put there to single to those voters that, you know, the way to this very vulgar behavior that a lot of them present in the Knesset is is a is a tool to tell Mizrahim we're just like you, although they're nothing like you and they don't care about you. Um, and if they did care, they were in power for over mm. 10 years. Why haven't they changed mm. anything? Why are Mizrahim still struggling? That's the question that I'm asking my family. But um, I don't think that they are sober enough to to have this conversation. Yeah. What what do you think about the the portrayal of the um, the protests in Israel against uh, the judicial overhaul, judicial reform, whatever you want to call it? Um, what do you think of them being labeled as kind of elitist Ashkenazi Tel Aviv? Obviously, there's you know there's a, a huge core to that, um, but a lot of people, you know, myself included, think that it really represents more of. Um, you know, a, a kind of a more liberal-minded view in Israel, which isn't necessarily, con, you know, constrained by by uh, geographical location or ethnicity. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we can we can do both. I can recognize that this is a very liberal point of view that um, you have to really understand high politics to um, to understand why you need to go to the streets now to to protest against those legislations. Um, so it's definitely a very specific uh, part of the population that understands it. Understands it. Um, and uh, and I, I know that there's a lot of people that are in this protest because what, although they don't understand why why they should support them, I think everyone should support this protest and everyone should um, be behind stopping the le- this legislation. Uh, but it's the same way that I think there are a lot of people that hear about the reform in the Supreme Court from the right wing don't understand what they are supporting, and they they think that they're you know that every, that what Bibi is talking about is having more Mizrahi judges in the Supreme Court, but it's not really about that, you know, <laughs> like. Ayala Shaked yeah, was yeah. Uh, was able to change the makeup of the Supreme Court, and she did not include more Mizrahi judges. Although she was part of, you know, it was an a, a, an effort that was led by Ayala Shaked and Likud when they were in power about six, seven years ago. Um, but she just created added more conservative judges to the Supreme Court. So it's not about Mizrahi or representation the way that Netanyahu and others are selling it to some of the people. Um, it, it's really about more conservative judges and, and controlling the Supreme Court. Um, but I do think that, you know, the makeup of the protesters mm-hmm. on the left, at least, are uh, probably more liberal, probably seem more Ashkenazi. But what is Ashkenazi in Israeli society today, right? We're talking about being more civilized and, and being more um, mm-hmm. less aggressive and 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 being more polite, like that shouldn't be Ashkenazi in the same way that Mizrahi shouldn't be, me, the meaning of Mizrahi shouldn't be vulgar and primitive and, and backward and conservative. But those are the, <laughs> the, you know, the roles that we have been assigned and we're often playing into them. <laughs> it's so similar to some of the discussion. You know, I try not to compare it to the U.S., but there are a lot of things that kind of rhyme, so to speak, with, with racial tensions here, except that it's here, it's kind of flipped. Right, like here, the you know the, the the struggle for the minority is considered more of a left wing struggle, but um, and in Israel, it's become sort of a right wing populist struggle. Don't you think a bit of it in Israel is? I mean, not a bit. I think most of it is really a religious divide. I mean, and I don't mean religious people versus non religious people. I think it's a divide between is this a Jewish country first and foremost, or is this a democracy for Jews? You know what I mean? Or with a Jewish Jews country or a country like, for the Jews. And I think a lot of the people on the right who are holding tightly to this government and to these ideas are their first and foremost on their mind is keeping Israel Jewish. And that's the thing they care about the most. And if people understand that more and understand where the fear on their side is coming from, where the motivations on their side is coming from, it just it helps explain, I think, a little bit what the behavior is. Because it's hard to understand if you don't if you can't relate to that piece of it, the religious piece, you can't really understand the whole system over there. And I think it's lost in a lot of people on the left. They don't really, because it's hard to relate to religion if you don't believe in anything or you don't care about it. It's very hard, you know? I don't understand evangelical Christians here in this country. I can't, like, even as a religious Jew, I can't really wrap my head around an evangelical Christian. And I think a lot of that is similar in the streets of Israel now, where it's like, just stop bothering us. Why do you know? Why don't okay, you be religious and B'nai Brock and Meisharim and leave us alone? But they have a fear too. You know, their fear yeah. is is real. So yeah, but I mean, if, I think the difference is there's a few things here. First of all, is someone that is not yeah. a, I'm not 
def- identifying as religious, I guess, but I do, you know, we do Shabbat every, every Friday and we, uh, and we do Kiddush <laughs> and we're, um, and I fast on yeah. Yom Kippur and I do all the practices because I'm away from my home. And I feel yeah. like, I think Jabotinsky was talking about how, when you're in the diaspora, you have to maintain your Jewish religion because that's your identity. And I feel like <laughs> I have to chase my religion yeah. here because otherwise I would not be, I would not feel Jewish. Um, but I think, so I think it, there is a way, and maybe it's not, it wasn't introduced to Israelis yeah. yet of being yeah, Jewish, yeah. but not Haredi, um, in a way that you can, you know, you can live, you can live your life in a, in a meaningful religious. I, I didn't, I didn't realize that I could be Jewish mm. and not like really Orthodox, like my dad taught me. Um, and it was actually, if I, you know, if I would wear a kippah, it would be right. frowned upon if I'm, uh, how are you getting yeah, wearing a kippah? Yeah. And here it's uh, very, very much, um, so, I mean, it's, it's normal. And yeah, so I think. I think there's that. Then there's the other part of being, you know, tolerant, tolerant and, and, and accepting others. And if I was, you know, if I would go with a pride flag into a Haredi neighborhood in, in Bnei Brak, I would probably get attacked and I would not do it. Like, or, or if I go there on Shabbat and drive a car because that's my way of living, like I would, I would probably be attacked and that's, and I, I wouldn't do it. And I would understand why that's like disrespecting their way of living. But the question is why, a Haredi person can, um, or, or there is a Haredi yeshiva mm. in, in Shenkin, in Tel Aviv. Um, and, and, you know, they're in pride. No one is attacking them mm-hmm. for living life the way that they could. And I think it's very important that we're looking into being more tolerant and, and accepting of one another uh, and understand each other's fears. Um, but Absolutely. it can't yeah. just be And I understand right? the, you know, I, I can understand the fears sometimes of the religious community and you know, Chayla and I were talking about it. I was in Israel um, last fall and people were celebrating Halloween, which I hadn't seen growing up. And I could see how as a religious person, you'd be freaked out by that. You know, it's not it's not a, a, a good progression, let's say, even though I kind of find it, you know, harmless. Um, well, and so, I went, yeah. no, and I mm-hmm. went, I went this year to the Pride Parade in Jerusalem Mm-hmm. And I walked through the streets of Jerusalem and you know what? I was very uncomfortable. I'm I'm on it. I'm gonna be honest about it. Like really? I had very conflicting feelings inside because on the one hand, I felt proud that like even in the most religious city, holiest city of the Jewish people, we were, you know, there was nothing happening. There was no violence. Everybody was, you know, shouting and screaming and walking and you know, it was very like inappropriate happy signs. No, like I'm yeah. saying the the the, pra- the pride parade, very inappropriate <laughs> yeah. signs that made me blush, you know, which is hard made to you do. Blush. Yeah, yeah, which wow. is hard to okay. do, but still, you know, and people dressed <laughs> in a way. And I was very proud. And I have to be honest, on the other side of me, I was extremely uncomfortable. And I kept thinking, like, why are we doing this on the streets of Yerushalayim? Like, these are holy streets and these are people in homes that are raising kids that are trying to instill in them a certain set of values. And we're Mm -hmm. like shoving it down their throats, walking down streets. And I, I'm not saying one side of me is more, is louder than the other. I'm just telling you that sometimes I live in uncomfortableness. Right. And I, I, I think more people in the Haredi world have to do that. I think it's important to live in that space of being uncomfortable. It's okay. But I also want to recognize that those two feelings are real. Like the, both of those feelings are very real to me, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it will take time, but I, I think there's hope. I really we do. We can't always be fighting for our existence. Like we're fighting for our existence externally already. We can't <laughs> always think that every pride parade in Jerusalem or every um, restaurant in Tel Aviv that closes on Tisha B'Av is like the end of 
our way of, of Judaism or our way of life as we know it, right? But everything is like so high stakes now that yeah. every single thing is the the end of our people. <laughs> and that's something we need to get over because we have enough problems. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like it's like, it's also um, not, speaking, sorry, yeah. uh, I also think it's not fair to, for us, I mean, because I hear your your concerns, Chayale, it's like, it's very real and very true, but also a lot of Jews feel like their Jewish identity is being challenged because they're not religious enough or, or the, the, I mean, the conversation of, yeah. you know, oh, you're yeah. open to Shabbat, that's really against what being Jewish is. And you maybe, I mean, to the point of like, you're not even Jewish. So that's, I think both parts are feeling like they're not being heard. Terrible. And, and I yeah. think a lot of, and I think that's why in Israel today, if you look at the secular, um, secular Israelis in Tel Aviv, they reject religion so much. And I don't know if it's like the chicken of the egg or the egg, what made them reject and look mm-hmm. down right. at Jewish identity right. so much that they can't stand it anymore, that they would open Roars on, on Tisha B'Av as, as a matter of principle to annoy, um, to annoy their, their brothers and sisters that don't accept them. So it's yeah. really, yeah, it's just something, something for all of us to think about. Yeah. But it is very, kind of a feature, yeah. but it is kind of a feature of early Zionism and the early establishment of the state. I mean, the Ashkenazim who started, who were the leaders, they hated the religious Jews. They, they were, it was like embarrassing, like, oh, the Yiddish and oh, the, you know, the mm-hmm. rabbis and the beards and the coats. It was, it was like, it was very Holocaust for them. It was very yeah. we, yeah. It's not what we want it to be. We want it to be, you exactly. know, the new Zionists who are tanned and working the land. Yeah. And meanwhile, and they didn't realize what would happen, you know, 75 years later. It's a problem. of children. David Ben-Gurion <laughs> would pass out on the street if he saw what Israel <laughs> looks like today. I'm saying, like, he couldn't even imagine. To be oh. fair, he'd probably also pass out if he saw, like, the Pride Parade in Tel Aviv. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's yeah. just a lot. It's a lot. But I think, you know, I've said this on, on Twitter. Um, I was, um, or, or, or maybe we spoke about in the last episode, that I was driving through Wyoming, uh, Yellowstone, one of the most beautiful places on earth, uh, with my mother and driving through these open roads and just listening to news from Israel because, you know, we're so caught up in, in what's going on. And, you know, in a sense, we, you know, it's not like America where we can afford to just be separate and be like, let's hate each other from a distance. Like, we have to yeah. figure this out. There's no choice for Wait, us but to figure this out. Before Khan goes, we only have a few minutes. What is the oh, yeah. Tel Aviv Institute? And tell it, like, what, do you, what oh, is it? Oh, yes. What, what, do you, what do you actually do? <laughs> who are you? Yeah, um, who are you? <laughs> when do you come here? Yeah. Um, so I'm, uh, the Tel Aviv Institute is a, a nonprofit organization that I started, uh, although it's called the Tel Aviv Institute. We're based out of, uh, Washington, um, <laughs> Seattle. That's where I, oh. <laughs> that's where I, I lived. And it's uh, an international uh, operation that is basically helping Jewish content creators, uh, from different mm-hmm. fields. So people mm-hmm. like, um, you know, stylists, uh, or chefs or, or, um, all sorts of content creators um, and, and singers, artists, um, to uh, to empower them to speak about their Jewish identity online. Uh, we know that mm-hmm. anti-Semitism is on the rise, um, and what, whatever starts online never ends online. So uh, we realized that the way to really make a difference is finding those people that are power multipliers, and their followers often don't even know that they're Jewish. Um, they might have like you know hundreds of thousands of followers, and they never spoke about their Jewish identity. So we bring them to our laboratories where we train them and give them the tools to speak about their Jewish identity and and being online um, in a you know in a way that is more authentic to themselves wow. and, and able to make an mm. impact. And we create this community and we support one another. We have hundred thousand, uh, sorry, hundred thousand, over a hundred um, influencers in our in our network now uh, with reach of wow. you know. 
over a, a few tens of millions together um, and were wow. able to really make a difference with their content that is you know it's it's more it's more empowered and more informed um, uh, Jewish content um, and they come in with zero percent Jewish content on their social media and live with like 20 25 percent um, of their content wow. is about their Jewish identity wow. so yeah it's really amazing and all of them are are they already yes yeah, right are they already in, in tune with their Judaism when they come to you? Are they already kind of, uh, is that part of their identity or they're just exploring? It? Um, both. Some of them would be, you know, we had someone in the last lab that said that she was raised to be an anti-Zionist because her mom really hated Israel. Um, and, you know, through mm-hmm. the lab, she learned, she found her Jewish identity again and her love to Israel that in a way that is more complex and nuanced and, and, um, special and and a lot of them, I mean, think that mm-hmm. they can't be Jewish if they're not religious. Um, and I just, I'm getting so many pictures of their new tattoos that they're getting, uh, like Star of David or like something in Hebrew. <laughs> uh, it's very sweet. Uh, but I mean, the fact that we can, you know, we help those wow. influencers wear their Star of David on their sleeve—that's really amazing. Literally, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's that's very cool. What do you and and you know again? We're trying to. You, you just tell when you need to go, you just cut yeah. off and Hila and I will keep talking. <laughs> but I did want to ask you because, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on social media a lot as, as Hila as probably a lot of our listeners. And I, I definitely noticed a shift. It's always been hard to be Israeli on social media since the first day I logged on with my IOL account, which is Israel online and somewhere in the n- late nineties. But, um, but you see a lot of it, a lot of the anti-Israel stuff now coming from, you know, progressive left, but also a lot of Jews who are, I wouldn't say they necessarily hate Israel, but they don't, they don't want to bring Israel into their Jewish identity. So they might be proud Jews, but they say to themselves, oh, you know, Israel is too controversial and I have a problem with it because I read something in the New York Times once and, you know, I have no connection. What, what, what do you think about, I don't necessarily want to call them anti-Zionist Jews, but Jews who just like feel like they have no, no need for Israel in their life. In it, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I understand where it comes from. And I understand they live in society that tells them that, you know, they need to shed this identity to be a good Jew, because if you are a good Jew, then the, you know, the society will love you and accept you. And a good progressive. Yeah, exactly. And, and, there's, yeah. and they fail to understand that it's, you'll never be a good Jew, because for them, there's no way to be a good Jew. Uh, if you want to be progressive, you have to give up your whole identity and you can't be, you know, holding a religion and as they see it, because they see Judaism as only a religion, not an ethnicity. I'm, I'm speaking about the non-Jewish world, um, especially progressive non-Jewish world. And mm-hmm. and for progressives, pro- progressive Jews, the way for them to feel like they can be accepted is denouncing Israel. Um, and even then, like th- th- that's again, it's really the point is that they will never be accepted. And I think that they're trying everything they can to be accepted. And the reason that they're going so far to to call out Israel, some of them, is because they they feel like they're not accepted yet. Um, and and otherwise, I mean, some Jews would think yeah. that they can just leave Israel at the door, and it's not true because Israel will come up uh, at some point uh, for them. That's what I feel. Yeah, that you'll be. Call- I mean, there's always somebody said there's every generation thinks that there's one thing. Every Jewish generation thinks if we only do that one thing, they're going to accept us. For my generation, it was like the disengagement from Gaza, right? We said, oh, once we leave Gaza, <laughs> the world won't have anything to say anymore. It worked and out so well. <laughs> worked out so well on both on the diplomatic level and on the security level. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's any... Um, one second, Chen, you have yeah. like, I read in your bio before, I couldn't believe this. I was laughing so hard. You have like 10 trillion 
engagements on social media. I mean, I never heard of such a number. I was laughing. Ten gazillion. <laughs> ten, ten gazillion. There's not even a Hebrew word for how many you have. But who's your like dream retweeter? Like who do you, like if someone would retweet you, who would be like somebody that you would just, it would make your whole day, you wouldn't be able to do anything else that day except like. Lizzo. No. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I, well, the, the, the number is that over a hundred million people interacted with con- my content on social media. We measured it, which is pretty amazing. Uh, um, I mean, that's insane. Yeah. A hundred so million almost people. As, mu- as many people as listen to our podcast. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you're almost there, Chen. You're almost, almost at our there. level. Almost, keep close, trying. close. Um, no, I mean, it's just like a hundred, <laughs> over a hundred million people saw any content I put out there, which is, you know, saw my that's face. Amazing. Um, my my cute face. Um, it's amazing. I think yeah. like, <laughs> who would be the who would be my um I, I wanna say it it was Deborah Messing, but then she started following me and we started speaking oh. and she's sharing my stuff all the time now. <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of content. Um, that's so cool. That's, so that's nice. cool. She's the queen of the Jews. Anyone <laughs> Anyone that really stood out to you, like you said you can never you don't feed the trolls, but has there been anyone that ever maybe somebody from a Arab or Muslim country who kind of came back at you and said, you know what? I, I learned something. <laughs> the, I had so many positive interactions with people, um, not even Arab and Muslim world, more like progressives that are even more, some of them can be even more yeah. um, hard liners than, <laughs> uh, yeah. than, than Saudi That's chefs um, that have, you know, after a conversation <laughs> with me, were able to see things in a different way and different perspective um, after reaching out or, you know, my, my type of activism, I, I would never just call out someone as anti-Semitic. Like I will always explain why what they're doing is harmful to yeah. the Jewish community. There's so many, I mean, it's kind of popular to be a yeah. Jewish influencer these days uh, for a lot of young Jews, but a lot of the times the way that they do it is we'll just feed feed hatred to or, or feed anger within our community um, to people and say, oh, look at this person is an anti-Semite. This is anti-Jewish racism. Them. Okay, great, but like maybe explain to people why yeah. it's so um, harmful to us, and that's what I'm trying to do. And then, and I think that's why a lot of times I get people that I even call them out in in a whole Instagram post would reach out to me and we'll have conversation, and they they're not becoming allies to the to Israel, and they're not going to march down with an Israeli flag, but they're much less um, angry with uh, yeah, much less hateful, yeah, yeah. much more nuanced. Whatever. Okay. I think it would be cool if Barack Obama would Yeah, I would love that, you. actually. Mm. Barack or, or, actually, Michelle Obama. That would, that would be, cool. be cool. Or Monica Lewinsky. Michelle, yeah. Oh, Michelle cool. Obama would be even better. Oh, you, you know, I have someone. start spamming her. Wait, I have someone. I'm now Who? thinking. Um, you know Esther Perel? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. How come you, you yeah, love you Esther Perel? That's so funny. Yeah. Really? I think her book is, is her, brilliant. I think her First voice... Can we talk about how hot she is? She's so old and she's so hot. (laughs) Right? She's in her 70s. Okay, can I confess something? Everyone likes her because she... Yeah, Yeah, sorry. Everyone likes her what? (laughs) You have to say and then I'll have to confess. Because she gives permission... She gives permission for everyone to be in these polyamorous <laughs> relationships. <laughs> Deep down, everybody just wants permission to Who cheat on their more, spouses. More partners. I don't know why somebody would need I more. I know, partners, I know. But, but like okay. my, so I, yeah, my partner doesn't like her at all because of that, because of like how much she preaches to polyamorous. Um, but because I tried to like listen to a podcast with him um, a few times, he doesn't like it. But anyway, because he doesn't like her at all. Um, so I, she's coming to London. And in a few months and I got a ticket for myself and I got the VIP package I'm for so a meet and greet. 
<laughs> and I felt very pathetic, but I'm, wow. that, I'm that sort of person. No. <laughs> so look, no. look out for the photo. <laughs> and she probably, she probably knows sure. who you are. No, I would no, bet she knows who you so. are. I love that so much. <laughs> Ask her if she wants to meet I, a Haredi lady. She like she could come on. Sure. I would love to talk to her. We had Doctor Drew oh, on. We can we yeah. can have her on. That's true. Uh, we yeah. did have Doctor Drew. Yeah, he best. was wonderful. <laughs> uh, Ken, where where can people find you? Um, we'll put it all in the show notes. Where can they find him? Where can yeah? Where can people <laughs> hide from me? I mean, um, <laughs> there's nowhere to hide. I'll find you. But nowhere, nowhere. <laughs> I'm on um, I'm on social media, every social media platform that is in existence, mm-hmm. and um, you can find more information about TLVI, the Tel Aviv Institute, at tlvi.org. Um, and get my book at um, at Amazon or wherever you get books. We'll awesome. put all links to it. Chen, thank you so much thank for, for so doing much. what you do. Thank, thank you for you. not being an an activist in the in the you know like people play to one side, right? And thank you for always kind of going with your truth and yeah, and yeah, even yeah. if it doesn't fall neatly in any package, those are the kind of people we we like the most. Oh, I appreciate totally, it. Thank totally. you. That was a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Ren. Have me have me being. back again <laughs> soon, <you>. please. <laughs> yes, anytime. I have so many more things to talk to you about. Well, I'll come back for part two. Bye. I barely got anywhere. <laughs>